It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Last month, India celebrated 75 years as an independent country. To great pomp and ceremony, Prime Minister Narendra Modi inspected the guard. The Prime Minister will now make his way through the beautifully decorated Lahori Gate to reach the ramparts of Red Fort for the flag unfurling. And unfurled the national flag of India. To the tune of the national anthem and a 21-gun salute. He used his speech to say he wanted India to become a developed economy in the next 25 years. Key to that goal will be the country's conglomerates. Reliance, run by Mukesh Ambani. Dear shareholders, at a time when a bright future is beckoning reliance, what gives me optimism about ability to realize our dreams is our huge reservoir of young, dynamic and best-in-class talent. The Adani Group, run by Gautam Adani, who just overtook Jeff Bezos as the world's third richest man. I can confidently state that we are on the cusp of one of the most extraordinary periods of growth that any democratic nation has ever known. And then Tata Sons. Largest steel works in the whole of the British Empire is the great Tata plant at Jamshadpur. Which has been around since long before India's independence. Most of the subcontinent's major industries are Indian-owned. Among them, the fabulous Tata Enterprises. During the last half century, members of this enlightened family pioneered in the development of one business after another until they had built up the largest aggregation of industries in India. But for many years, India's prosperity hasn't lived up to its potential. Can big domestic bets by these corporate giants change the country's economy? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, a weekly podcast about the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Samaya Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. And in this week's episode, betting big on India again. First, we'll speak to the boss of Tata Sons to find out why he stopped looking abroad for growth. Currently, if you ask me, most of our capital is going in India. Then, we'll head to Western India to find out more about the country's surprisingly robust green energy transition. We've seen a massive ramp up of renewables in wind and in particular of solar. More new solar has been added in about the last 15 years than we've seen in Australia, Britain and Netherlands combined. And we'll ask, will this finally be the year that India's promise turns into reality? You might not get the results that you got in Japan in the 50s or in China, maybe in the 1990s, early 2000s, but you're seeing very, very powerful growth.
Hey, Samaya and Alice. Hey, Mike. Greetings from a nation in mourning. Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy week. Um, it's been amazing, I, I think, for me as well to see the sort of global reach of the British monarchy. Um, I don't speak Bahasa, but I'm in Jakarta at the moment. Apparently, there's no direct translation of Westminster Hall, which was a pretty good way of working out what was being discussed on the radio while I was in the taxi here. Yes, perhaps less surprisingly, the reach of the monarchy also extends to Cheshire in northern England, which is uh, where I was this weekend when I heard the news. I was helping my friend set up for her wedding. But as soon as we, we heard that, um, that the Queen had died, her dad popped open a bottle of champagne so we could toast her reign and said, the Queen is dead, long live the King. Well, there is still some way to go until the funeral on September 19th, uh, so plenty of time for you both to pay even more respects. But until then, shall we get on to today's episode? Yes, let's. We are heading to India this week and breaking with our run of incredibly grim subject matter to take a look at one bright spot in the world economy this year. It's a country that's recently overtaken Britain to become the world's fifth largest economy. To find out more about what's powering its growth, we're joined this week by Tom Easton, our Mumbai bureau chief. Tom, hello. Hi. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to talk with you. So tell us a little bit more, uh, just as background, about India's economy right now as you see it. What's the situation coming out of the pandemic for those who haven't been paying close attention? Well, India is demonstrating very, very strong growth. The last quarter was approaching 15%, I think, GDP growth. And you could say that's from a low base effect, but I think most people expect the growth for the year will be about 7%. It's second in the world only to Saudi Arabia, which has a far less diversified economy and it's tied to petrol prices. So the the overall growth rate has been remarkable and it's been led by three different elements. One element has been growth companies, unicorns and so forth. And it's been helped by the repair of its financial system. And lastly, it's been helped by the move of some ginormous companies, three in particular, Reliance, owned by a man named Ambani, uh, the Adani Group, owned by a man named Adani, and and lastly, and perhaps most importantly, by Tata. Now, you've written previously about this ambition that India can become more of a manufacturing center and and critically a, a place with higher rates of corporate investment. That's something that the country has struggled to foster before. Why is that? So I think India is pursuing a different philosophy of manufacturing growth. Importantly, it has shifted the emphasis on who should be doing it from state-controlled companies. I think the new philosophy has been to really focus on a handful of gigantic companies. And India is doing two things, maybe three things. For one, they're helping them. How are they helping them? They're giving direct financial benefits in terms of production-linked incentives and so forth. They're expediting approvals which in India is fantastically important because it has historically been a country swaddled in um, red tape. And they're creating often impediments for imports. So they're making it easier to produce inside of India and creating a lot of incentives to do so and making it difficult to create outside of India and import into India. And, you know, it's a controversial way of going about economic development. But so far, it seems to have traction with this handful of very, very important companies. Um, They are investing very, very heavily. Right. So you mentioned those important Indian conglomerates, uh, Reliance run by Ambani and the eponymous Adani Group. 
both of which kind of get the most attention, the most drama. But the biggest company in India is, of course, Tata. It employs almost a million people, and it's in some ways the ultimate survivor. One stat that stuck with me from your reporting was that in terms of firms today worth over $200 billion that are still independent, Tata is the oldest founded in 1868. Clearly, it's managed to adapt as India has changed. But what is it doing now? So Tata is present in this resurrection in numerous areas of the Indian economy. You know, in, in manufacturing, it has a huge complex that's going up in Tamil Nadu, which is a state in southern India. And if you were to drive through Tamil Nadu, and I spent 40 hours driving through it, you see something that I think you would have recognized in uh, Shenzhen maybe 20 or 30 years ago. You see all sorts of factories popping up from the ground, and they're coming up very quickly. You know, that is simply something that didn't happen in India before. It would take years to get approval, years to build a factory. Often construction would be stopped in between. I mean, there are many, many manufacturing centers that are coming up in the southern Indian state and in the state next to it, uh, where Bangalore is located. So you see this kind of resurgence. I mean, I think people who are very experienced in India are incredulous at looking at this stuff happen because India has showed promise so many times in the past and it's been disappointing. So India's move to actually not only have a plan to do things, but execute that plan is new. But if you're in India, you can see it happening. Yeah, and no one epitomizes that happening more than Tata. Great. Well, Tom, we're going to hear from the boss of Tata, who we spoke to recently, but we'll hear from you again later in the show to find out whether or not you think this sort of pivot inwards can succeed. Thank you. So, Alice and Sumeya, before we hear from Natarajan Chandrasekharan, who I spoke to earlier this summer when we were both in London, quick quiz. What does Tata actually make? Cars? I think it owns Jaguar Land Rover, right? Steel, steel, definitely steel. These are both correct answers, but unfortunately, Mark's off for only getting about a tenth of what Tata actually does. It's also in hospitality and chemicals and IT services and tea and coffee. And Jaguar Land Rover is just one of the many automobile companies under the umbrella. Oh, and it recently bought Air India, which was the dubious winner of the world's worst airline award for several years running. So just a few businesses then, eh? Yeah, it's quite a lot to keep track of, which is why I was so interested in chatting with Mr. Chandra Sekharan, who's widely known as Chandra. And just a bit of background, he was formerly head of Tata Consultancy Services, and its share price rose about tenfold while he was in charge. Okay, well, I feel well briefed. Well, without further ado. Chandra, uh, very good to have you here today. Very nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So you became executive chairman in January 2017. By the calculation of my colleagues, the market capitalization of the listed companies under the Tata umbrella has gone up from something like a little over 100 billion US dollars to 269 billion US dollars since then. And the immediate debt of the companies that make up Tata has dropped quite a bit as well. And what were the sort of challenges for Tata at the time you came in in 2017? And how would you frame where the company is now? When I look back, I think we had challenges in terms of the balance sheet of many of these companies because we were highly leveraged at that point in time. And some of these companies were not profitable. And we had to address 
the balance sheet issues of many of these companies, whether it is uh, Tata Steel, Tata Motors, Tata Teleservices, Tata Power. And we need to also make a transition in all these companies towards the future. For example, in automobile, we had to resolve the issues related to the passenger car business in India, which was hugely loss-making and the market share was going down. So we had to do a turnaround and also at the same time make a bet on electric vehicles. In Tata Power, portfolio of about 4 gigawatts was hugely loss-making. So we had to address that and also at the same time transition to renewable power. In Tata Steel, we had a huge challenge in our European assets. So we decided to focus significantly in Tata Steel in India to increase capacity because there was a lot of potential in the Indian market. So we had to make those kind of bets. And we also had to consolidate similar businesses across the group. So there were four different defense companies. We put them together and created a single defense company. So we basically simplified the group in terms of the core areas in which each company operated. You started your, your second five-year term as, as chairman earlier this year. If the first five years, we, we categorize that roughly as the sort of the, the turnaround, solving a lot of the issues with these businesses, what are the sort of main things that you're interested in doing with, with the second five years? I think if you look at the overall effort that we are driving in the group, it can be categorized in three planks. The first one is strengthen the core. Second one is transform the core across digital transformation, sustainability transition, supply chain resilience, and health, wellness, and safety focus. And the third plank is create businesses for the future. I would say the strengthening the core part of it is by and large achieved. While each of these companies have a high aspiration in terms of growth, for example, Tata Motors has a huge plan to grow in the electric vehicle segment. Tata Power has a huge growth plan. And by 2030, more than 70% will be renewable energy. So like that, each of these companies have got a huge aspiration. But all that cash flow to support this growth will come from the companies. The future businesses that we are betting on is we have launched a digital app called Tata New, which is our super app, which connects all the Tata consumer-facing products for the consumer. The second business we are creating is the 4G and 5G technology stack. The third, we have gotten into electronics manufacturing because we believe the whole supply chain resilience focus globally necessitates an alternative supply chain. We believe India can be the base, so we are doing that in electronics manufacturing. We are doing it in telecom. We are doing it in batteries, so we'll be launching a battery plant. And the fifth area we're focused on is the consolidation of the airlines. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I think on the, the supply chain stuff, that's a really interesting area. And And one of the reasons, certainly I find it interesting, is that when you look at India's sort of general economic development story, 
It's been very different to what you might think as a standard sort of East Asian model, which has been very goods export focused. India's had a, a very different development story. It's been much more services focused, less manufacturing and export focused. Your sort of move in there in, into these areas, it would imply something quite interesting and different about where you expect sort of economic opportunities for India to come from in the coming decades. Is that right? I think that's uh, very fair. But if you look at the Indian market, I firmly believe this is going to be India's decade. While this is something that has been said before, I think the science, at least I see within our group, the demand both for consumption as well as for infrastructure-led growth is pretty significant. We are seeing this demand not only in tier one cities, we are seeing significant amount of demand in tier two, tier three, tier four. This clearly validates three or four core themes, the rising middle class and the aspirations of people and more formalization of the economy. All of this is happening. So we want to participate in that growth. In addition to that, the point that you made with regard to the supply chain, it is real. Globally, the geopolitics as well as the crisis we saw during the pandemic has demonstrated that the supply chains purely created for efficiency could pose a problem. So we see this as a significant opportunity. I think the global supply chains will be built, rather rebuilt, and there will be opportunities I actually wanted to ask on the question of the sort of more technologically advanced things that the company's moving into, how quickly do you think these might be sort of major portions of Tata Sun's total revenues? It's very difficult to say because I don't want to say that the remaining businesses should not grow because all these businesses are going to be future businesses because by 2030, our EV vehicle sales will be the significant portion of the overall passenger car. We are also pivoting the commercial vehicles to both electric trucks and in the future hydrogen-based buses. So the good thing is when the transition is complete to electric vehicles, these businesses will be totally new businesses. They won't be the old businesses. We have said that 70% of our energy business will be renewable energy business by 2030. I personally believe we will beat the target. So again, that business, while today looks like a traditional business, will be totally a new business. And it's one sort of final question and thought from me is, if you look at the purchases Tata has made and you look at the approach, it does seem to be more domestically focused than it was, if people remember, sort of 10 years ago. Is the future for Tata mostly in India? Currently, if you ask me, most of our capital is going in India. This is not to say that we will not do business elsewhere. If there is a right opportunity, we will do. We are a global business house. If there is a right value proposition like business opportunity, we will just definitely do it because we can run global businesses. But it has to make business sense, right returns, right areas. So we'll be on the lookout. But definitely India is a big focus. Okay. Chandra, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. Thank you. It was my pleasure, Mike. Now, after the break, we are going to go into a bit more depth about one area of potential growth that Chandra highlighted there, renewables. 
But before that, it is our favourite time of the show, where we are going to ask you to subscribe to the Economist. You can read our comprehensive coverage of Queen Elizabeth's death and what the era of King Charles III could mean for Britain. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com forward slash podcast offer. If you are already a subscriber, thank you very much. You should consider signing up to our newsletters. You can sign up to both Money Talks and The Bottom Line at economist.com forward slash newsletters. Both of those links are in the notes to this episode. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chandra said earlier that 70% of Tata's energy business could be from renewables by 2030, which would be a huge shift. Helping us put some of this in context is Vijay Vaithiswaran, The Economist Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor. Vijay, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. So we heard a little bit from Nataranjan Chandrasekharan there, and one of the main areas he spoke about was renewables. I think that most people might have an impression that India is a sort of laggard in this area overall. How fair or unfair is that reputation? Well, it's certainly true that the biggest source of energy that comes to the power sector is is coal, the dirtiest and most greenhouse gas intensive. So India is not a global pioneer like Denmark with wind, let's say. However, we've seen a massive ramp up of renewables in wind and in particular of solar. More new solar has been added in about the last 15 years than we've seen in Australia, Britain and Netherlands combined. So what about outside of Tata? When you look at the other really large Indian conglomerates, what's going on with them in this area? So you find that there's a bit of a gold rush that's beginning to happen in the renewable sector. The reasons for this are pretty plain. One is that the fossil fuel prices have skyrocketed, particularly imported natural gas, but that of coal as well. But you also see that the cheapest way to create new power, thanks to the declining cost of solar, is renewables, in particular with the new solar photovoltaic. And the third factor is that India, it turns out, maybe half a dozen states in India have very, very high quality potential. Uh, That is some world-class capability to produce solar because they're sun-drenched. And in some places, like in the Kutch region of Gujarat, also have very strong winds that complement that. That makes it less of a a risk, uh, meaning it complements the sun in the day with the high wind in the evening and so on. So for these reasons, what you're finding is that a couple of the biggest business houses in India, one run by uh, the Ambani's, which is known as Reliance, promised to pour in tens of billions of dollars into this area. And Adani Group has already started a very impressive uh, manufacturing and ambitious clean energy complex that I went and visited on my trip. It's in a place called Mundra, which is India's largest port, not too far from Mumbai. And on my visit there, I saw not only 
India's largest coal importing port, a traditional kind of heavy industry port, but how the company is transforming it into now becoming a big cluster for solar manufacturing, wind turbine manufacturing, and soon to begin electrolyzer manufacturing to make uh, the machines that will create green hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is an area that Mr. Chandrasekharan mentioned. I think that's an area that, that some listeners might not be as familiar with how that works as they will be with with wind or solar. You've pointed out that there's some particularly interesting innovation going on there in India. Tell us about that. Sure. The first thing to say is hydrogen is not an energy source. It's an energy carrier or fuel. So like electricity, you have to make it from something. There isn't a magical pot of hydrogen waiting in the middle of India to be discovered. So typically it's been made from fossil fuels. The world uses lots of hydrogen today. India is the third biggest user of hydrogen in the world already. And it's used in things like petrochemical refining, uh, making fertilizer, for example, and various other uses that are typically heavy industry. And it's very dirty at the moment, the way it's made. What India is hoping to do, and now has a quite a strong set of policies to encourage the development of is renewable energy-based hydrogen. You can substitute the hydrogen that's made from fossil fuels and instead make it from renewables. And that would have a couple of benefits for India. Uh, Like what? One, of course, again, you reduce the import tab. That's very important to the government. And that gives a, a pragmatic reason to think this might happen. This isn't just about pandering to the green crowd or, or trying to do some virtue signaling. This is cold, hard cash as far as the Indian government is concerned. The second point is that India really sees the opportunity to create a domestic industry in this area to make both the hydrogen, but also the technologies that are related to manufacturing of hydrogen. There's a, an equipment called the electrolyzers that are used to convert clean energy into that hydrogen, the crack water, split the hydrogen and the oxygen into constituent parts. And that Technology is not that complicated. And so that gives a great opportunity for Indian companies that have excellence in power electronics and software and sort of mid-level frugal engineering. We're seeing clusters develop. A city of Pune, for example, which is a regional city in, in northern India, which is already an auto parts cluster, has done quite well. I met with Siddharth Mayur, a dynamic entrepreneur who runs H2E Power and Homey Hydrogen firms that produce electrolyzers, fuel cells, and other clean energy kit. It was Diwali, I think, October of 2009. I had called my grandmother to exchange greetings. She said we had wonderful Diwali, but uh, we didn't have electricity. We did it with candles. So that actually changed the course of my life. I was never into electricity or electrical or hydrogen or fuels. But uh, that night I could not sleep. I didn't even eat food uh, for Diwali. And I said, you know, 25 miles away, our family is living in abject energy poverty. So thought of doing something. And uh, since then, then we've developed uh, fuel cells. We've commercialized them, we've developed electrolyzers. And by next year, we'll be able to deliver completely Indian-made uh, electrolyzers. Everything has to be made here. I think by end of next year, at least 98% of the components will be made in about 200 or 300 kilometer periphery from where we are sitting. And that in real sense will localize the product and make it very inexpensive and most importantly, make this a sustainable state. Mm. I'm not against any other country or I'm not against imports, but then if you're dependent on something and if something like a COVID strikes, what do you do? So how does this push for sort of green uh, technology and renewables play into India's broader growth trajectory? This decade, India could become the fastest growing big economy in the world, which would require a huge amount of additional energy. 
If that additional energy comes from fossil fuels, it will be an air pollution tragedy for the Indians and a climate change nightmare for the world. However, a dramatic increase in the share of clean energy and fuels could enable the growth needed to alleviate poverty and build a middle class even as it reduces the environmental impact of that development. It's an ambitious vision, but for Siddharth Mayur, the entrepreneur we heard from earlier, there's a genuine belief that his technology can make it happen. For every house to become energy independent, the technology is giving us an opportunity for every house to become net zero. Right. And if we start from a village, there are 550,000 villages in the country. Every village becomes net zero, energy independent. Every farmer becomes energy independent. Every farm gets converted into a factory. Imagine 118 million farmers in this country who own land less than two hectares. Right. If you're talking about 118 million people becoming SMEs, becoming entrepreneurs, rather than being suckered to the economy, they will contribute to the economy. This is what hydrogen or this is what this whole ecosystem can do. Now, Mahatma Gandhi would probably approve of that vision, but you don't need to believe that small is beautiful if you want to clean up India's dirty energy economy. Wonderful. Vijay, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. It's been great to be with you. So we've heard about how the country's biggest businesses are now once more looking inward for growth and some areas where that growth could come from, like renewables. But because this is Money Talks, we've got to look at some of the potential obstacles. So I wanted to bring Tom back in. Now, Tom, we've heard a lot about Tata's ambitions and about what the broader ambitions of India Inc. are in things like renewables. They seem to have some quite sprawling objectives. Do you buy the hype? I guess my feeling as a correspondent is I went in as a skeptic, you know, and I come out of a Western tradition where simplification is very, very important, where companies are constantly spinning things off as much as they acquire them. But, you know, you have to look at reality as it unfolds. And it has done a remarkable job. I mean, I see the cars being used. I see the power outlets being used. I see, you know, the faith that people have in Tata. I see how enthusiastic people are that Air India is now in Tata's hands. And so can it operate? I mean, the evidence is it it seems to be operating. And and so what are the risks that we see there? You know, the government is very important in things. It can withdraw permissions. It can mess up the allocation of infrastructure. It, It can just make importing the component parts that you need for all the products that these companies are producing harder. It can put tariffs in the wrong place. I mean, it can screw this up in innumerable ways. And historically, it has. And even right now, in any particular area, you will find many, many problems. But I think what you have to feel if you're in Tamil Nadu or if you look at the products that are being sold or if you go to Bangalore or you go to all these places where things are happening, that the progress is forward. It is up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the subject of journalistic positivity, this will be the sort of first uh, positive episode of Money Talks we've probably done in about three months. It's all been sort of relentlessly grim for a long time. So it's a it's a nice step change. What I want to know as the sort of final question, Tom, and it's a crucial one, is all of this sounds super optimistic. And, and the big question I'm left with is, you've seen a rapid rate of growth in the Indian economy recently. Is this the sort of trend where you might actually see a sort of sustained higher rate of growth for the Indian economy going forward than the one that we're used to? Yeah. So they used to say there was something called the Hindu rate of growth, I guess, that was 2% a year, this desultory, painful process that just didn't produce anything. And, you know, the world economy is slowing and that has to have other 
effects on India. But let's talk about a rate that's possible. Let's talk about in excess of 5%. That is not necessarily extraordinarily fast for an emerging market, but that's an incredibly fast rate for the world. Is that possible? That is possible. One of the problems India is facing right now is the head of Wipro, that's a large IT consultancy, says it's cheating that many of his employees are now taking on two jobs you know, or more jobs. But, and you can be sympathetic with his complaint and yet still awed by, you know, in, a, in the rest of the world where people are saying, is anyone going to return to work? Where in India, you have this large population that wants more than one job. There are still more hurdles to doing anything in India there than there are in so many of the countries that I visit. But the people there are, are eager to overcome those hurdles. So yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that you might not get staggering rates of growth. You might not get the results that you got in Japan in the 50s or in China, maybe in the 1990s, early 2000s, but you're seeing very, very powerful growth. Wonderful. Well, on that, uh, yeah, very rare Money Talks optimistic note. Thank you, Tom, very much for joining us indeed. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. I think you should relocate to Mumbai (laughs) and you're always welcome. Great. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Alice Samea, what do you reckon? Is this India's moment? Yeah, I would obviously love it to be, um, but I suppose I'm a little bit cautious. If you talk to multinationals, not, you know, India headquartered ones, getting stuff in and out of the country is just a nightmare. Customs officials are super difficult. And if you're thinking about moving complex electronics production into the country, you do have to import some components. And the paperwork and the uncertainty associated with those supply chains makes that just really quite difficult. I also heard about a a scheme that the government used to try and encourage production in India. There were these production subsidies linked to growth in output, but then heard that there was some uncertainty about whether even once the government had announced this scheme, whether they would actually pay the money out. So there can be this fairly large divergence between what the government says it's going to do um, and then what actually ends up happening. Yeah, I agree with Sumay that there definitely are sort of reasons to be cautious. Before I joined The Economist, I actually was an economist in Southeast Asia covering India and Southeast Asia. And we'd always be talking to our hedge fund and pension fund clients about how the region and India had so much potential. There were so many people, income per capita levels were so low. They just had to follow the sort of same path as the sort of export-led growth models of of China, South Korea, etc. And that they would make it to those much higher sort of income per capita levels of the the rest of the region. And actually, that path to growth doesn't seem to be as robust as it once was. So it's really interesting to hear these sort of really big Indian companies talking about inward looking ways to grow more quickly. And it does seem to be working. So yeah, I share some of Sumeya's sort of scepticisms about uh, how easy it's going to be. But it certainly seems as though they have a really interesting strategy that seems to be paying off. One other thing to mention, which we haven't touched on, is the role that politics plays in all of this. Um, Beyond the Indian government support of Tata and the other conglomerates, Mr Modi's BJP has secured power for at least another couple of years. That's allowed it to pursue its economic policy, but it's also allowed it to pursue the discrimination policies against India's Muslim minority. The risk is if this sort of thing continues, it could lead to a stigma that impairs India's ability to access Western markets, its appeal as a destination for foreign investment. And that could be destabilizing at home. So with that appropriately gloomy note of caution, should we now move to our stats of the week? 
Yes, uh, I will go first. I have deviated from my usual tactic of doing irrelevant stats that are also quite cheerful to do a sort of miserable and uh, relevant one this week. My stat is minus 0.8 percentage points, which is the fall in American house prices month on month in July, according to one of the sort of house price series uh, compiled by Black Knight. And it is the biggest decline in US house prices since 2011. So this comes obviously on the heels of sort of several years of really, really rapid price growth and seems to suggest that uh, very high interest rates are really starting to bite in the US. Okay, very gloomy. I'm going to add to that. My stat is 44%, uh, which is the share of British adults who said in response to a YouGov survey that they cried or became teary or welled up at any point due to the death of the Queen. Truly a nation in mourning. What were the other splits? Everyone else said they, they didn't care or they just didn't cry or... Was it? So 54% said that they physically had not cried. 2% said they didn't know, which is slightly odd. Well, for some Brits with a sort of very stiff upper lip, it may be such an unusual occurrence that they're uh, a little bit unable to tell whether they're crying or not. Um, for my statistic this week, I have gone with minus 10.3 million. And before Alice accuses me of uh, depreciating my number by putting it in a weak currency, um, that is in metric tons, so it is heavy, um, is the shortfall in Chinese liquefied natural gas imports this year. So that is an absolutely huge drop. It's about 20%. In the first eight months of the year, China imported 20% less liquefied natural gas than it did in the first eight months of last year. So there's a sort of paradox here of the fact that this is actually weirdly helping the rest of the world because of the massive shortage of LNG elsewhere. Well, thanks, China. And speaking of thanks, our thanks this week go to Natarajan Chandrasekharan. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write and send statistics just to me at podcastseconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Marie Keyworth. Our editor was Kim Gittleson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufast. I'm Simea Keynes. I'm Alice Forward. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.